Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. We needed more than a logo. We had a logo. We had the pink triangle that was put on us by Hitler. So we didn't need that. We needed something from us that was better and expressed our love and diversity and all of that in in a positive way, as opposed to the pink triangle, which of course represents Holocaust and murder. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Alex, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition of Outcasting, I talk with Gilbert Baker, a gay activist. He was best known for creating the rainbow flag, the most identifiable symbol of the gay community. We recorded this interview on March 1st, 2017. Barely a month later, Gilbert died unexpectedly in his sleep, in his apartment in Manhattan, New York City. He was 65 years old. This is one of his last interviews. Here at Outcasting, we're heartbroken over the loss of our friend Gilbert. Many of our guests join us by telephone, but Gilbert wanted to join us in person so that he could meet us and spend some time talking with us. As an activist for over 40 years, Gilbert fought for the protection and advancement of gay rights. The greatest reward he received was seeing how his images empowered the LGBTQ community. My generation of young LGBTQ people are given an identity by his flag. Inclusion, freedom, and the power of choice, all symbolized in the rainbow flag, are ideas that we need to hold close, especially now as LGBTQ rights are called into question. In this interview, Gilbert talks about the history of the LGBTQ community and the current political climate in the United States. This is part one of a two-part interview. Hi, Gilbert. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, Alex. So to start, tell us what it was like when you realized you were gay. Well, I think I've always been gay. I think I'm born this way, to quote Lady Gaga. I, um, I think as a young child, I realized I was different in some way. And I didn't really completely begin putting that together until I was probably like five or six. But by then I was already thinking I was born in the wrong body that, you know, I should have been, you know, a a girl because I love to dress up and I love dolls. I loved all the things that quote unquote were pink and not light blue. So that gender confusion, if you will, at a very early age was very quickly resolved in my brain because I felt like, well, heck, I am gay. And so it took me a long time to really accept it because of the situation. I was growing up in Kansas in the 1950s, a time of, you know, you could be electroshock therapied. You know, you could be thrown in an insane asylum if your family thought that you were sick. And I was afraid of that. So I couldn't really, I mean, I could push it a little bit, especially in the 60s, you know. I could mimic Mick Jagger and, you know, all the clothes and fashion. And, you know, the 60s were kind of a fun, wonderful time. 
But you could really completely be gay until really the late 60s for me. And then I came out in 1970. Growing up in Kansas, did you have any trouble coming out to family members or friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone knew I was gay. I mean, from a very early age, everyone knew I was gay. I was screaming. I was, you know, I couldn't hide it. But when I finally did tell my family, it was very difficult. Uh, we didn't speak for 10 years, my father and I. It was, it was rough. Um, but I'm glad I, I came out because I, it was making me sick to be hiding, to, be, to not be free enough to be natural and to lie. And that lying all the time about who you fundamentally are as a person uh, messes you up. So when I finally you know, told my dad I was gay, that was the big one for me, it was liberation. And even though, like I said, it was very difficult and remained difficult all of our lives, um, I'm really glad that I, that I had the courage to do that because it kind of got me through a mental illness. Did you have any better luck coming out to any of your close friends? Not really. No, I, I came back to the 50s and the 60s. Being queer in high school was the lowest. I was an outcast. I mean, I was popular because, you know, I was an artist. I played music and I loved to dance and I threw great parties. So I was popular, but I was still a queer. And so I was bullied and, you know, made fun of. And it's not easy to be gay in high school. And it wasn't easy then and it isn't easy now. And no, I could never really tell any of my friends. When I was in high school, I couldn't – even when I came out, when I was like 19, uh, 20, I couldn't really go back to my high school friends and say, oh, by the way, I'm gay. They already knew I was gay. They just didn't want to talk about it. It, was, it scared them. In my life, then later on, you know, 30, 40 years down the road, I meet them again. And surprisingly, some of them are gay and have come out. But in, but in, in the time and the day, they were too terrified to be associated with someone out. And, and so, yeah, it was very, very difficult at the time. Was it difficult for you to overcome the heteronormativity in 1960s Kansas? Well, sure. Of course it was. It was difficult to overcome it, but I overcame it because I'm an artist. I'm a, you know, I'm a person that believes in free expression. But the things that I overcame in Kansas were everywhere. You know, I thought I was the only one until I read about Stonewall Riot in New York City. And then, oh, my gosh, there's homosexuals, people like me. And then I would read up in the library, what are homosexuals? I would find out about it and realize I am not the only one. I'm not the only one that feels this way. I'm not the only one that was born this way. And so my experience was I was born at the right time to have the courage to be an individual and to, you know, embrace that. Later in your life, you lived in uh, San Francisco serving in the Army. How was it to be a gay man in the U.S. Army? I was worried I was going to get beaten up. I was worried I was going to get murdered because the violent culture of the Army is really something. You think it's hard to be gay in high school. Try being gay in the Army or the, even the Navy, perhaps maybe a little bit different, but very, very difficult because they pick you out. And then they bully you and they make an example of you because they don't want anyone else to do it. It's very controlled. I would highly recommend everyone read a book called Conduct Unbecoming by Randy Schultz. And it's really the story of many, many different people from the Army and the Navy and the Armed Services up in 
through Vietnam, the World War One, World War Two, World War Two in particular, Korea and Vietnam, those experiences of people like me, when you read the collective stories of all these different people in all these different times, what you realize is that the army has got a very system, what's the word I want to say, a very systemized way of oppressing homosexuals. And it, it, you think you're the only one, you think you're being singled out, but you are being singled out for a reason. And other people are being singled out as well because they need to have victims. They need to, to, they need to show their bullying and their violence on somebody so that it keeps everyone else in line. And that is terrifying. So was it easy? Absolutely not. I had it lucky because I was a nurse and I was in science and I was stationed in San Francisco, very glamorous, but it wasn't easy at all. And so, you know, as we began organizing around the idea that service should be something open to everybody and we should be able to serve in the army openly, that took another 30 years for it to happen. So, right, that's how hard it was. It, was, it took decades for us to change that. After you were honorably discharged from the army, you lived in San Francisco. How is the environment uh, different in relation to homosexuality? Well, San Francisco in the 1970, 71, 72 era, we're coming out of the summer of love. San Francisco very famously had a, the quote-unquote summer of love, 1966-67. And it was wonderful. It was all about free speech and incredible music and an explosion of, you know, self-expression. By 1970, 71, that whole scene had turned into drugs and heroin. Basically, it was a mess. But it's out of that moment, the summer of love, there's enough energy left that especially for men, all of a sudden the idea of free love and that whole idea of, you know, exploring our feminine side, all of this happening around the time of the women's movement really bursting onto the scene in terms of women really grabbing power, it emboldened a lot of men to do the same. And in San Francisco, that really became kind of a, a nurturing place for homosexuals like me. I had just come out to my family, but I wasn't quite, you know, wearing the high heels yet. That would come, but it just, you know. So it was very interesting. It was a time of exploration in, in terms of our sexuality and, and you know, our, our, our look, our gender, if you will. So you're most well known for the creation of the pride flag, a symbol for the gay community all around the world. How did you become a flag maker? I love to sew. The very first thing I did when I came out of the closet and got out of the army was I bought a sewing machine because I always loved clothes. I always loved dressing up. You know, even secretly when I was a kid, I would wear dresses and, and I always loved that. And I always loved fabric. And I thought, well, I, I'm very good with my hands and I could learn to sew. That's what I did. And of course, 1970, I had to look like Mick Jagger and David Bowie every single second, but I could never afford the clothes. So I learned to sew. I taught myself, and that became my activism in terms of I began making banners for protest marches, and, you know, there would be protest march, and I'd be sewing gay rights now on pink chiffon out of my rag pile, you know, or whatever. And uh, that got bigger and bigger as I began to understand how important visuals are for a movement, how uh, important 
the scale and the, the spectacle is for the message. And as that grew, I became better and better. And finally, in 1978, I was able to take all of that and make the rainbow flag. I think that the bicentennial in 19... 19- 76, which was the 200th anniversary of America, I think that's really when I began to notice the power of flags as opposed to just fashion and the things that I like. But that flags as cloth are a particularly interesting genre, if you will. It's political. It's art. It's That really intrigued me. And what intrigued me about the American flag in the bicentennial was how it was on everything. You know, it was on jeans and artwork and T-shirts and, you know, coffee cups and you name it. And I thought, well, wait a minute, we could have a flag. We're kind of a – we're not a nation. We're not like the United States of gay, but we're, we're rather a global tribe. And a flag is about power. A flag is about proclaiming power. It says something. You're saying – when you put up a flag, you're saying something. So that fit with the, uh, the message of being visible, of coming out. And in the 70s in particular, my friend Harvey Milk very much famously said, come out, come out, come out. You know, you'll be so happy when you do. And he was right. And and still to this day, I think that that's one of our biggest things is being visible. So the flag really helps us be visible in the sense that it represents us. It's a signifier, identifier. Speaking of Harvey Vilk, I know you two were friends for a while. And the story goes that he challenged you to make a flag for the gay community. That's a myth. He wanted a logo. Not necessarily a flag, uh, so that's a bit myth. That's a not. I, he didn't know how to sew, and I, I wanted to make a flag because I saw how flags can become very powerful symbols. How flags can become other things. He wanted a logo because he comes from a graphic, photographic background, and in the 1970s, that's what everybody did. They got a little square and a triangle and a bup the boom and this little ink, and it became a thing and stamp. There it was, Con Edison, and it was on everything, and everybody had a logo. But we needed more than a logo. We had a logo. We had the pink triangle that was put on us by Hitler. So we didn't need that. We needed something from us that was better and expressed our love and diversity and all of that in, in a positive way, as opposed to the pink triangle, which of course represents Holocaust and murder. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, I talk with Gilbert Baker, a gay activist and the creator of the rainbow flag. We recorded this interview barely a month before Gilbert's untimely death at the age of 65, on March 31st, 2017. This is one of his last interviews. This is part one of a two-part interview. Harvey Milk was a close friend of yours. We were friends, yes. How did you react to when he was killed? Oh, it was terrible. He was a young man. You know, really just at the beginning of his career, it was he was murdered. He was assassinated. So it was... It was horrible. You know, I remember we had a big candlelight march, and people were very, very sad. It was very, very sad. It was like the end of the world for us because he had been kind of our general. He had been leading us. You know, I was one of the, you know, I made flags and banners and made everything pretty and powerful and just one of many people that contributed my talent and my 
my craft to the movement and, you know, many other people. It's interesting now that not everybody died. And everybody that lived out of the AIDS years, so many of us that worked with Harvey, we're still doing the same thing. We still carry that with us. We're still dedicated to, you know, building a more just society for gay people. So Harvey's influence extends far beyond his life in its time. That's an amazing thing about him. People will never know how funny he was. He was very, very funny and very, very body and very, very sexy. And they'll just never know that he was he, he wasn't the saint that everybody I think wants to kind of paint him as some kind of lavender saint. But you know, he was a real man and when he was murdered it affected us because he was our friend. How did you feel the gay scene change as Harvey Milk was coming into prominence and gay rights were becoming a little more mainstream? Well, I felt good. I felt uh, powerful. You know, there was a magic moment in the 70s when everything was exploding. Everybody was, the rainbow flag, just part of it. You know, theater, film, music, you name it. It was really happening. Literature, all of that was a wonderful time. You know, it was very much a time of self-expression, of liberation. And that's something I really treasure because it's very missing today. Today, everything's very controlled. So there's not a lot of room for innovation or pushing boundaries like there was. How did you feel that positive trend change as Harvey Milk was killed and the AIDS epidemic started? Well, when people start dying around you that are your friends, it changes everything. Oh, we used to laugh about it. You know, we'd have sex with everybody and go to the bathhouse and, you know, you'd have, you know, a sexually transmitted disease and you just got a shot. You didn't think about it. But somewhere along the line, I think maybe like 80, 81 in there, all of a sudden people were having more than just sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis or gonorrhea and we really did not know what it was. And then when my friends started showing up with what turned out to be Carposi's sarcoma and lesions, we're like, wait a minute, this is really serious. And then when they started dying, it was scarier than you can ever imagine. I didn't have sex for four or five years because I was so afraid that I would die. Everyone at first did not believe it was sexually transmitted. I thought so immediately. I thought, well, wait a minute, it's just a little too weird that this virus is attacking us this way, and I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I survived it, but a lot of people didn't, and it robbed us of a whole generation of very important thinkers and, you know, leaders, and I, um, I'll forever be scarred by it. How do you think the gay community was able to recover from such a horrible event as the AIDS epidemic? I don't think we have. I don't think we have recovered, quite frankly. I mean, some of us lived, but power changed in the sense that Harvey was kind of the last individual that had power. Power was invested in individuals. After that, it became institutionalized power, gay power, you know, the human rights campaign, all these groups and politics, all of that began to filter in more and more and still does. And once in a while, someone will be great enough to transcend that, but that's very rare. I feel like um, the older I get, the more I miss that. The more I miss the sense of people being daring and 
bold. Everything is very safe. Everyone is very cocooned in luxury and comfort. And that extends to our intellect as well. People don't want to think about it. People don't want to think about only 80 years ago, homosexuals were being rounded up by the Nazis and killed only 80 years ago, even though there are a lot of parallels with what the Nazis did and what is happening today. In addition to being a flag maker, you are also a very active activist. What do you remember as high points and low points of your experiences in activism? Well, the high points are, you know, I I organize really beautiful rallies. I create really gorgeous messages. And, you know, high points are, you know, my world record flag for Stonewall 25 when I built a mile-long flag. That was pretty amazing, 10,000 people, gorgeous Life magazine, you know, beautiful, fantastic, really a powerful moment. You know, sad moments are throwing the ashes of my friend into the wind because, you know, he's gone. And so those are, that's, that's kind of a sad thing that never leaves you. So yeah, activism is about saying something. Activism is about involving yourself beyond yourself. It's about joining with other people to create something a little bigger than yourself, even though I contribute very big things. It's about joining with other people. You know, I'm I'm very proudly a member of Queer Nation even to this day. And basically, we pride ourselves on that we will organize what nobody else will touch. Everything from gun issues and violence issues. We, We did a lot around the Russian Olympics and the whole way the Olympics Uh, oppress gay people. There's a whole, of course, oppression of Russian gays that we addressed here in the U.S. And and so we throw light on the things that need need it. And that's what activism is. It's about saying, we're not going to take this. We're going to change it. A large problem with LGBTQ rights is that LGBTQ history isn't often passed down from generation to generation because unlike race and other gender issues, uh, often people don't have family members who are gay. And if they do, they're often ostracized by other members of the family. You're talking about gay youth not knowing our history. They're not taught our history in the schools. That information is not readily available unless you seek it out individually. Everyone should be interested in history. I read history. Even now, at this advanced age, I still find out things. I'm doing a lot of research right now on the Pink Triangle. I'm really trying to understand that violence, that Nazi mindset that would allow people to be so cruel and evil. And I'm trying to understand how that was manufactured as a tool against us and how we accepted it. And so I'm trying to, as I get older and older, and that's not just about the horrors of the Nazis. You have to look at the way Gay people were persecuted in the 50s in the United States. I mean, you could be drummed out of the military. You could be fired, the whole McCarthy era, all of that, all of it, even up through Ronald Reagan, even up through Bill Clinton. You know, don't ask, don't tell. What's that about? What about Defensive Marriage Act? I was so insulted by that. I, I organized 2,000 people. We marched down to the Democratic National Headquarters in San Francisco, and we shouted, shame, shame, shame on Bill Clinton for doing that in the dead of night. And you know what the Democrats did? They turned off the lights and ran out the back door. They were too embarrassed by it because it was so horrible. And then it took decades more for us to finally get the Defensive Marriage Act basically overturned in Windsor and ultimately in Oberfeld. So yeah, 
you know, the, the, the systematic oppression of gay people is still happening. You know, we had some nice time with Obama. He finally evolved. You know, I'm standing there in the blue room handing him a rainbow flag. It was like the highlight of my life. But that's a long time ago now. That doesn't mean anything. I won't be back in the blue room anytime soon. So, and they're going to be rolling back as much as they can. You know, the whole religious exemption thing that we're facing right now, which is a, their argument that, you know, I have the right to not serve you a wedding cake or take your picture or whatever because of my quote unquote religion. Well, that is an interesting argument. Well, not really in the United States do they have that luxury. We have laws about that separation of church and state. And this goes to the failure of our gay institutions. As long as our gay institutions our power institutions I'm talking about, and our leaders will not engage the church's hatred as long as they will not talk about religious hate and the way that that's organized against us in churches all across this country and around the world. And if they will not talk about that part of Christianity, we will not succeed in stopping these laws. That, that is a problem. That's a big problem. And that's a complicated thing to to weave in a country that's full of bullies, racists, and murderers. Another big issue with gay history is that it's not taught in schools, not included in school curricula, just because when we learn about a public figure getting assassinated, we learn about MLK, we don't learn about Harvey Milk. How do you think we can help improve school education concerning LGBTQ rights? Well, it goes to the curricula you're talking about. You can't learn about it if they don't teach it. And they don't teach it because the teachers don't know. And then you go up against these horrible school boards and, you know, they're trying to, you know, drive dinosaurs into, you know, the, there's only six, you know, the anti-science thing in this American thing is so crazy. I just can't even go there. But anyway, how are you even going to get to gay history when, you know, they're talking about Jesus and dinosaurs at the same – you know, huh? What? So our job here is to educate the educators. And that happens by young people demanding better education, demanding to know the stories. You know, it's not enough to open up a textbook and read about MLK. Well, what about Malcolm X? What about the Black Panthers, huh? What about those stories? And if you do not demand to know your history, it will be not only forgotten, it will be withheld from you. Information is controlled. I mean, we like to think that we have everything at our fingertips because we live in this digital electronic age, but we're all subject to controlled information, all of us. And that's dangerous. And the only way we can get out of that is to demand better education and you know, a freer press. What do we lose when this history isn't passed down? What do we lose? Everybody loses. Everyone loses because there's – we don't have a soul. There's, we don't exist. That's bad. I mean this whole thing like I'm mentioning about controlled information and demanding better education is about freeing ourselves from the shackles of ignorance. Gilbert Baker was a gay activist and the creator of the rainbow flag. We recorded this interview barely a month before Gilbert's untimely death at the age of 65 on March 31, 2017. This is one of his last interviews. We've been listening to part one. 
The second part will be featured on the next edition of Outcasting. Along with many other LGBTQ people, I was saddened by Gilbert's sudden death. I reflect on Gilbert's life and death in the May 2017 edition of Outcasting Overtime. You can find it on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Ian, Becca, Ari, Jamie, Callie, Adam, Danielle, Andrea, Brianna, Emma, Sharin, Jessica, Sarah, Dhruv, Lauren, Dante, Josh, and me, Alex. Our assistant producer is Alex Mintz, and our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Alex. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for a continuation of this interview with the late Gilbert Baker. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.